I think one of the most lovely elements is in, in the New Testament is what I see is the relational reliance from the Son to the Father. Jesus routinely said things like, I only do the things I see my Father doing, or I only say the things I hear my Father saying, or the Son has not come to do His will, but only the will of the Father, or the Son can do nothing except for what the Father is doing through Him. And what I want you to imagine this morning is that that's not mechanistic, it's not utilitarian, it's not like theological, it's deeply relational. It emerges from the eternal reality of the Trinity. And Jesus says things like that, of course, because the stakes were really high. I mean, literally all the hopes and dreams of Israel were pinned upon him. And there was this great hope that their father God, Yahweh, was going to one day do something for them. And so Jesus is saying, this is unfolding right before you, but it's unfolding in this really deeply relational way. Similarly, the church is to have a relational reliance on the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And only as an analogy, the stakes are really high too, only now in this eschatological way that the church is meant to be the body of Christ, the spirit-filled, spirit-infused, the spirit-working-through-them body of Christ in this age of the Holy Spirit that exists until Jesus comes again. So when we come to a moment like confirmation or installation, um, this is not merely religious. It's sacramental, again, but not merely when somebody first invented confirmation, they weren't thinking, how can I make a bit of liturgy? <laughs> they were wondering, how do we take children who were baptized and who had promise made for them? How do we catechize them? How do we lead them to their own personal faith such that then the Holy Spirit would fill them so that they can be the people of God in this time between the times? So this morning when Ethan and I met with the confirmands downstairs, I said to them, when I lay hands on you, I'm not just going to be saying words. My heart's intent is going to be that you will genuinely be filled with the Spirit of God. And if you want to receive that, it will actually happen. And the Spirit will animate and energize and give you gifts. And think of Galatians 5, transformation of your character. This is all the work of the Spirit. And it's initiated by the laying on of hands, praying for these confirmands that they would daily increase in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. All right, so how's this fit the big story? Well, our reading in Luke 24 gives us the narrative-based purpose of the sending of the Spirit. And it alerts us to the fact that the Holy Spirit has nothing to do with a denomination. This isn't about, you know, the Assemblies of God or Foursquare or Vineyard or independent, you know, Pentecostals or independent Charismatics. It has nothing to do with that. It's not like a religious consumer choice, you know, where someone would say, well, I'm really Presbyterian, but I guess I'll take a little bit of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> you know, as if the Trinitarian God says, oh, thank you very much for your openness to me. I mean, it's just not like that. It's not like an extra. It's not like getting air conditioning in your car or not. 
No, Jesus roots it in this big story that everything written about me in the law of Moses and prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he just simply says, for this to happen, I'm sending the promise of the Father upon you. So stay in the city until you're clothed or equipped with power from on high. So then in Acts 1, the narrative simply continues where Jesus gave them instructions through the Holy Spirit, spoke about the kingdom of God and said, wait for the gift of my father that was promised to you. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And essentially, he's assuring them, don't worry, this story is going to unfold. And the way it's going to unfold is through you receiving power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. So given these readings and the context for confirmation, what can we say about the Holy Spirit? Well, the first thing to say is I think that maybe he's the most misunderstood person in all of the scriptures or in all of church history. Some want to consign him to history and that, you know, once we have the canon of scripture, we really don't need that much to do with the Holy Spirit. Other people are kind of afraid of him. They think he's a source of weirdness. Like if you come from, you know, Pentecostal or charismatic backgrounds that were difficult for you. And I just want to say, I totally get it. I mean, I was president of vineyard churches for years. I've seen the good and the bad and the ugly of anything and everything associated with the person and work of the Spirit. So I get how normal people read Acts 2 and just sort of shrug their shoulders. What? A mighty rushing wind, cloven tongues of fire. How did that work? Did the wind blow the fire around the room? You know, like, what does this mean? How does this work in an age of, you know, Bluetooth and AI? It like just seems so remote from us. I get it. I really do get it. And I think of people who maybe read the list of gifts in Ephesians or Romans and 1 Corinthians, and again, kind of shrug their shoulders like, I don't know, what's prophecy? How's that work? What's What's a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge? And how come when we pray for some people, they're healed and others aren't? And again, I totally get it. But what I want to say to you this morning is we're still left with the upper room discourse. And as I get into this, I always want to say to like establish something, do you think Jesus is smart? Like seriously, do you think he was conscious, self-conscious? Do you think he thought that the things he said corresponded to some sort of important reality? And I'm sure every one of you would say, yes, I believe Jesus is smart. Well, then we just have to wrestle with that it's Jesus who said, it's better for you that I go away. Now, you know, his first friends shook their head and said, what the heck? Like, we've heard a lot of hard sayings, but this is the weirdest. How is it conceivably better for us that you would abandon us? That was their fear. And that's why Jesus answers them with, don't worry, I'll give you this paraclete. Now, that's an interesting Greek word that Greek scholars have, you know, fussed about for as long as we've known the word. It's translated all kinds of ways. My favorite translation of it is the continuator. See, their fear is abandonment, and Jesus is saying, no, I'm going to continue with you. You will be surrounded by, immersed in this other reality that will not only comfort you in that particular word, but Jesus, when he describes what that comforter will do, he'll teach you, lead you, guide you. Everything I've been trying to instruct you in, he'll bring to mind. Essentially, the Holy Spirit will become the leader of the church in this age until Jesus comes again. So I want to, what I want to suggest, especially for those of you who have 
like genuine kind of hangups about this. I just want to suggest, and you can sit with it in the days and weeks ahead, that the spirit is as easily grieved by being ignored as he is by excess. And it's because we live by God's plan and purpose in the age of the Holy Spirit. J.I. Packer, who no one would think of as a leading Pentecostal, <laughs> said that the essence of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is that as Jesus' deputy and representative agent, just try to feel that, he's to be that in Christians' minds and hearts. He's to mediate to us the personal presence and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why our passage in Luke 24 is a major pivot point in not only the biblical narrative, but of human history. Why did Jesus say, wait? What did they not have? They had his being, they had his teachings, they saw his deeds of power, they heard him in interpret his teaching and way of life and deeds of power around the kingdom of God. What were they missing? And if you just take a sentence away this morning, I pray this is a sentence you'll take away. That the purposes of God and followers of Jesus require a power that matches that intention. See, if we have a reductionist view of Christianity that's simply all about the son dying for us to somehow placate the father so that we go to heaven when we die, there's no imagination for that in or for the Holy Spirit. But if you broaden the gospel to include, no, you're to be actually the agents, the ambassadors, the, representa the representatives of God's kingdom, well, now suddenly it, be, it might be nice to have wisdom. Well, that comes from the Spirit. It might be nice to know what to do in a given setting. Well, it might be nice to have a word of knowledge. Or when one of our loved ones or friends are injured or sick, it, it, it's good to understand what it is to pray for people and to engage in a, a healthy theology of both healing and suffering and understand how this works in the church. Well, that is all the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So that Pentecost is meant to be seen as the moment when the personal presence of Jesus, again, try to imagine this, when the personal presence of Jesus with the disciples is translated into the personal power of Jesus in the disciples. So that the spirit then becomes the mode and means by which God is putting his power and authority into operation in his people as a new world is being born. That's what's at stake. This is not about, well, I'm, you know, really Methodist or Anglican, but again, I guess I'll take a little bit of the Holy Spirit. No, the Holy Spirit is crucial to a new world being born through God's work in his people. And again, that's what I pray for myself daily. It's what I'll be praying for the confirmands and asking you all to join me in that prayer. That as the Ezekiel passage says, that these people will be given a new heart to work alongside God via the Holy Spirit. So this new world is meant to be marked by the joy of spirit-filled life. You can think of the animating, energizing, empowering, and gifting, to coin a term, the infruiting action of the Spirit loosed in the church. And each individual follower of Jesus 
The vision here is that the disciples, filled with the power of the Spirit, were then commissioned and equipped to begin the work of Jesus in the world through them, the further inbreaking of the kingdom of God. So being filled with the Spirit is not an idea, it's not a proposition, it's not a bit of doctrine called pneumatology. It's something we're meant to know by experience. So you may be here this morning and not have clarity on when the Spirit comes. Like our, our Pentecostals write that, you know, you receive the Spirit when you speak in tongues, and it's a second work of grace, or is more of an evangelical view that you receive it at conversion. Well, you might not be really clear about that on either of those things. But here's what these passages invite us all to be clear about. Is my life inspired by the person and work of the Holy Spirit? You can have lots of intellectual fuzziness around how that works. But what should be clear to us is that, yes, I feel the Spirit of God as promised by the Father and taught by Jesus living in me. I love the way Eugene Peterson um, gives us an analogy for this spirit-inspired life in his book called Eat This Book. He says, everyone recognizes the difference between an accurate but wooden performance of, say, Mozart's violin concerto number one. So picture a young woman or a young man who plays the cello good. They play in time, they play in tune, uh, everything's fine. But Peterson says that's a very different thing than a virtuoso performance by Yitzhak Perlman. Why? What's the difference? Eugene says, Perlman's performance is not distinguished merely by his technical skill in reproducing what Mozart composed. Rather, Perlman wondrously enters into and conveys the spirit, the energy, the life of the score. Ethan just stood before us and read us our score, our narrative, the story that defines our life. In a moment, Amanda will lead us in the Nicene Creed. Again, the outline. These are not like theological propositions strung together. Like when I say the Nicene Creed, I say, Lord, this is the outline of my life. This is what makes me truly human. This is what it means to be alive. Well, that happens through the person work of the Spirit. So then lastly, how do we enter into the Spirit-filled life? I love the picture in John 20 where it says Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And it's fascinating to me that the Greek construction there very much paralyzes, paral parallels the upper room discourse where Jesus said he took bread and he took the cup and he said, take. This passage says the same thing. Take the Holy Spirit. And in the same way that we come to Eucharist, like asserting our will or like manifesting in our bodies our desire with our hands like this. It's been classic for the church. It's not the only thing, but it's been classic for the church when they pray for the Spirit to do things like this. Yes. The vision is in John 20, as Jesus inhales, he exhales, and it's as if his first friends were balloons that are being blown up by his Spirit. Again, given capacity and gifts and fruit, able to be the church in this age until Jesus comes again.
One Greek dictionary I read said that, that what's pictured here is that his friends were accepting with initiative and that this word take emphasizes someone's will or their, the assertiveness of the receiver. You know, there's that famous passage that we all know in Luke 11 where there's, um, I think, the parable of the, um, the persistent person praying in the Lord's Prayer and then Jesus says, look, what I'm asking you to do here is ask and seek and knock. And so you hear the assertiveness or the desire that's in those words. And then he says at the end of that passage, if you know how to, good give, good, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give? Anybody remember? The Holy Spirit to those who ask him. So I want to take a quiet moment here and give you a chance to respond to the Spirit in a way that just makes sense to you. Hearing Jesus say, take. Inhale what I'm exhaling. Welcome the Spirit. Receive the Spirit. Catch the wind. Letting the wind of the Spirit move you where it wills. Let it lead you to a Christ-like surrender.